Hello and welcome to Casey Piper's Extraordinary People, the podcast where I sit down with an extraordinary person and they share their story. We discuss the highs, the lows, and break down the lessons learned from their life experiences. If you take a moment to look back at the hardest failures of your life so far, it might not leave you feeling particularly happy or inspired. For many of us, they're not things you'd like to think about ever again. Well, author and journalist Elizabeth Day has chosen to do the exact opposite. In her chart-topping podcast, How to Fail, Elizabeth is joined by names ranging from Phoebe Waller-Bridge to Alistair Campbell to Lily Allen breaking down how they've learned from their personal failures. The podcast led her to a Sunday Times bestseller book, also called How to Fail. And in October, she released her latest book, Failosophy, a handbook for when things go wrong. And Elizabeth Day joins me now. Welcome. Thank you so much, Katie. It is such an honour to be on your wonderful podcast and to be chatting to you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Oh, well, I'm very conscious this is a real role reversal for you. I know. I'm going to really struggle not to be the one asking all of the questions, but I'll try and sneak some in there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's an amazing concept. You know, I am a fan of the podcast. Um, It gets me through my 5K runs um, and I'm always in admiration because your guests are always authentic and that's not easy to do if you've got a public profile yourself. When you're getting guests, I mean, you're hugely successful. So usually that would mean it's easy to get guests, but is it difficult to get guests to to do this kind of thing? First of all, thank you for the compliment of listening to my podcast on your runs. I always think that is the ultimate thing to say because I know how hard running is. So if my (laughs) podcast can get you through that, then I'm really, really flattered. Um, And yeah, it's a very good question. I struggled to begin with, with the podcast because... The irony is, is that How to Fail has become the most successful thing I've ever done. So when I launched the podcast, A, I didn't really know what I was doing and B, I wasn't as successful as I am now. So um, not only do people not get the concept immediately, but as you rightly identify, they felt a bit nervous opening up in a way that they wouldn't have done in the past. I have to say that that has changed massively as the podcast has grown, because I Mm. think more people have listened to it and they get more of a sense of what I'm trying to do, which is absolutely not to get at someone. It is very much to be on their side and to reveal what makes a person exactly as this podcast does. And I think the thing that has really helped is that I ask guests to come up with their three failures in advance of recording. So they will have written an email quite often where they will outline briefly, sometimes not so briefly, what their three failures are. So they've already done the thinking and they already come willing to share within those parameters. So I think that they feel safer than they would do if it was just out of the blue. Yeah, it kind of softens that vulnerability, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. And I also am a huge believer in the power of, first of all, a nice introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, like you, record my introductions in front of the person that I'm speaking to. And I hope that those introductions are kind of complementary and informative and give them a sense that, again, I'm very supportive and appreciative of the fact that they're there. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also a huge believer in listening and just listening and showing that you're listening to someone's story. It helps, I think, there be a kind of moment of human connection and it helps someone to feel safe to continue. And it it sort of does them the honour of active listening. So I think maybe that's the other reason that people are willing to open up. 
Mm, I think you're so right about reading the intro in front of the guest because it flushes out that I'm not here to catch you out tone, you know. Exactly. It really helps win that trust and, the, you know, displaying that vulnerability. It's a safe place to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, because my background is in newspaper journalism mm-hmm. and I was a Sunday newspaper feature writer for many, many years and I would be sent to interview celebrities and film stars at junkets where they were promoting their latest movie, which sounds very glamorous and exciting, but actually, as you will know from having been interviewed yourself as someone so high profile, it's it's actually quite a mistrustful atmosphere a lot of the time uh-huh. because the person that you're interviewing doesn't know how you're receiving what they're saying and they don't know how you're going to write it up. And ultimately, I only had, you know, a thousand, two thousand words to do it in. So a lot of their quotes would be, would, would end up on the cutting room floor, as it were. And so you're only ever going to give a kind of selective context for who that person is. And I imagine that's really nerve wracking and means that the person being interviewed doesn't really want to open up because they know that you might write up in a way that isn't particularly nice. Mm. Whereas with podcasting, it's much more democratising because you know that it's only the conversation that you're giving that will go out there. Mm. Yeah, it's it's so much more intimate. It's interesting you touched then on your past as a journalist because you've won multiple awards. I mean, your background is you're a, you graduated from Cambridge with a double first. Yeah. How, how did failure become your thing? Because I, I really don't associate that with that background. Yeah, it is. I'm aware that it's quite nauseating to listen to someone like me who is white, privileged, middle class, earns a living from working at her laptop, has been lucky enough to have a, an elite education, as you mentioned there. Um, it is nauseating to listen to me prance on about failure and how to fail better which is why I always make the point that I don't, I know that I can't speak to a certain level of failure experience. That's why I seek to get very diverse podcast guests who can. So I can't speak with any authority about what it is to be a person of colour, to be homeless, to be marginalised, to live with a disability. But a lot of my podcast guests can, and I really, really seek that out. And and I want to use my platform for that. But I think what's interesting is that when people write potted biographies of themselves, or when you read about them online, obviously, it's going to be like an edited highlights reel. So whilst I completely acknowledge that I've had some professional success, and I'm really proud of my degree, so I'll acknowledge that too. But personally speaking, my life did not go according to plan. And this became particularly apparent in my 30s, where it felt there was such a disconnect between professional me, who was writing these newspaper articles and writing books, and personal me, who got married to the wrong person, got divorced at the age of 36, felt such a failure and such a sense of shame around that, tried and failed to have children, went through unsuccessful IVF, had the first of three miscarriages, got into a new relationship that then went wrong. And I felt really lost. And um, I did feel a real failure, but I didn't feel at that stage that I was able to talk about it because Mm. I was still so busy presenting this outward face to the world. Mm -hmm. And social media is so wonderful in so many ways, but I think that it does really feed into that culture of curated perfection where you feel as though 
everyone else is nailing life better than you. Yeah. And you need to keep feeding the beast and keep posting about all of your wonderful successes and happy moments. And I just got tired of that. And and I, I got to the stage where I just couldn't pretend anymore. And when I started speaking openly to my closest friends, something amazing really happened in that they started speaking openly back. And I realized that vulnerability is what makes us human and is the source of our greatest connection and that's why I launched the podcast, because I wanted to keep doing it. Mm. And and it's been a really amazing gift for me. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, because when I was reading the book, I kept recognising myself in there, which I'm, which I'm sure a lot of people do. And I thought, oh, you, you've taken ownership of this word failure, wh- whether that's by choice or whether that's that's just the, the surrounding thing of this of this brand and the books and the podcast. And I wondered if this was just, there was like an unrealistic expectation now that you can always deal with failure in the right way. So like the comparison for me is that people attach the word inspirational to me and that I'm so strong and I'm so brave. And sometimes I end up answering going, oh, I, I am. And then I think, no, I'm not. I'm not actually. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's some things I struggle with. And especially journalists they love to package you up in the beginning the middle the end and this is your strap line do you feel now that you've lost the right to actually not deal with failure well that is one of the best questions I've ever been asked oh good (laughs) it really really because that goes very deep for me and I have really struggled with that um and I'm not I'm absolutely not complaining about it it's just very hard when you read, for instance, a negative review that says, you know, well, what would she know about failure or how ridiculous that she chose to talk about this particular instance. And actually, I find that very hurtful because I've never held myself up as someone who advocates that there is, first of all, only one type of failure or only one way to fail. Like If you don't want to learn from failure, that's completely fine. Mm-hmm. And please go live your life in the way that you want to live it. It's just that I came from a place of having experienced some pain in my life and also having experienced enormous privilege. But I just felt that the conversations we were having weren't honest enough. And I find myself now in this amazing situation where people do ask me for comment on failure and they ask me to talk about it and I write books about it. But I do seek wherever possible to um, vocalise other people's experience so it's not just my own. Mm. So I suppose I do feel a little bit uncomfortable about it. But the bigger it's got, the more I try in a way for my own personal story to take a bit of a step back. Mm-hmm. I am so willing to be vulnerable and to go there and to share and to talk about my experiences where it's appropriate, but I don't necessarily want to lead with that mm. precisely because I don't want that reaction of like, well, what, what would she know? And then I think we get into a, a sort of self-flagellating competition where it's like, well, I was upset here and I was traumatised here and let me show you my wounds and let me show you that I have suffered enough in order so to have a voice. It's competitive, really, isn't it? Totally. And I think it's often asked of women in a way that it probably isn't asked of men. Mm-hmm. And I just feel there is no hierarchy of suffering. If you feel pain, that pain is worthy of your attention and worthy of your voice and you're allowed to speak about it. Um, And that's what I keep returning to is that it is absolutely not a competition. What kind of warped world would it be (laughs) if we were living in that kind of scenario? But I, 
in no way consider myself an expert or the person with all the answers. I consider myself a researcher in human experience and I'm lucky that I get to talk to amazing people. And the more that I talk to amazing people who have unique experiences and much more wisdom than I do, the more that I learn and the more that I want to share. So I suppose I see myself as a conduit rather than an expert. Mm. But I find it super interesting to me that you, who I also consider to use those hackney terms, inspiring and brave, don't feel like that inside. Because my experience, again, is completely different from yours. And I just want to salute you for everything you've been through. But when someone says to me, gosh, you're so brave talking about your miscarriages, for instance, I I feel really honoured that someone said that. But also, like, I don't think it's brave. I just think it's normal to me. Mm, it's your normal. Well, I, I think what irritates me is I do a lot of um, mentoring in my charity with other burn survivors who are really at the beginning of their injuries, the beginning of living a new life. And sometimes to build me up like this kind of beacon of inspiring Princess Diana style, you know, person is is not, it's doing them a disservice because when you're burnt, you don't just come out of a coma and deal with it and act brave. You know, my story in tabloid press has been really fast tracked, but it took me 12 years to really become yeah. who I am, you know, and sometimes that can make other people feel like, well, I'm not that brave or I'm not dealing with it that way. And it, it, it's quite problematic, you know, and, and it's, it's I'm misrepresented in that way, I suppose. It's difficult. Yeah. And I'm a, a huge advocate of giving yourself the time to come to terms with thing mm. with things so so quite often when we experience a crisis a failure some tragedy or trauma we absolutely need time to mourn the life that we've lost and to come to terms with it and sometimes mm. as you say that will take years mm-hmm. you can't immediately learn from something. You can't immediately fail better. And I put that in quotation marks and you can't immediately become the person that you're destined to become. And I just think that's such an important point. Mm. It's when I was running, it was yesterday when I, um, was listening to an audio and even very early on in the book you address this culture well almost society's obsession with positive thinking yes. and I was, I was running on my own and I started shouting not shouting but like responding out loud like vocalizing and I'm so glad she's ad- addressed this because again it, it's about shoehorning people into these descriptions of I'm a positive person and you know what does that really mean and is this detrimental to other people who experience other emotions in these situations mm. And, you know, actually the positive movement, particularly on social media, is quite harmful because it's very dismissive. It's almost telling us not to experience all range of reactions and emotions to trauma. And it's, again, when I go back to my real life off screen kind of mentoring, people almost label themselves like, well, I'm not positive like you. And you think, what does that mean? Katie, it's so good to talk to you about this because it's like, I totally agree. It is such a bugbear of mine. Mm. It's when something with a good intention becomes a hashtag that's when it becomes harmful so the positivity movement if I can put it that way has been so great in so many respects but one of my least favorite phrases is good vibes only and you see it everywhere from like yoga studios to kitchen walls and I'm like hang on a second 
am I being told that I can't enter this space unless I'm bringing good vibes only, unless mm-hmm. I'm feeling the best version of myself, unless I'm, I've woken up being incredibly positive about the world? Because what that does is it marginalizes all of those emotions that are part of the human experience. You know, sometimes I'll feel sad one day and that's okay. And actually feeling sad and sitting with sadness and sitting with times of anxiety where you don't know the answer is integral then to appreciating contentedness when it comes. So I'm a huge advocate of, of, of sort of life being texture and the fact that we are allowed to be lots of different things, lots of different times. And mm. another example of that is the body positivity movement, which I think is fantastic in its intent. It, it also means that there are now quite a lot of influencers who use an easy hashtag who make you feel you're a failure because you're not embracing your curves or you're not feeling mm-hmm. great about how you look on any given day. And that in itself just becomes another form of like self-oppression and a mm-hmm. stick to beat yourself with. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think it's neutral. Yeah, I need to feel neutral. I need to yes. look in look in the mirror. And I, I, no woman feels attractive every single day. And I don't think that's the goal. It's, it's to feel neutral and indifferent that actually my appearance is not going to be an obstacle in my professional world today because it's not everything that I am. You know, like yeah. that would always be my goal. I mean, I to feel positive about your appearance is probably quite a rare thing on a, on a regular basis for anybody. Can I ask you a question that you've probably been asked thousands of times before, but I'm very interested given the year that we've currently endured. When you're at your lowest points after the attack, how did you keep the faith? Did you keep the faith that it was, that it was a journey and it was going to be okay? I did. I mean, it's a very personal, individual experience that I had because I found a Christian faith in that time. So that is, and that was new to me. That wasn't the family I was brought up in. So that really helped me. Um, And people are obsessed with um, beauty surrounding my story. But with such a big injury, it was functionality. So each day, week, and month was lived by we. I've got to get my eyesight back. I've got to learn to swallow. I've I've got to get my respiratory system working again. And you know, so it like all the other things that you can see were very low on the list. So it yeah. wasn't really something that I was even conscious I was working on. And I had to go out and about in that time as well. So like any journey, one that's visible or or completely internal, it's just the consistency is never there. It's up and down. It changes all the time. You know, I'm always evolving. And I think this year we'd all learned that basic survival skill of those that can adapt, those that are malleable, those that can reinvent are are the ones that kind of realise that that survival skill. And that's Mm. something I became, I wasn't good at and I was very rigid and tunnel vision. And, you know, going back to failure, I, when I was young, I was obsessed with wanting to uh, be a model, be in television. And if I didn't succeed, that was a failure. And that, that was very limiting and very restricting. And ultimately, a, a lot of disappointment I was setting myself up for. And, you know, now it's a lot more acceptable to be, they, they call it the dashes, don't they, where you have all these different dashes between your profession and how you find fulfillment and make money. So, yeah, it's, it's very different now, my my purpose and my outlook on life. 
I, I think faith is really important and it doesn't have to be a religious faith. I talk a bit about that in the book, that it, it's it's like a faith in something bigger than you. It, you can call it the universe, you can call it cheese, you can call it um, anything you like, spirituality, but it's a faith that you don't have all the answers, but mm. something does and there will be answers there for you. That being able to kind of give that feeling of not being enough over to some greater power has been enormously helpful in my life too. Do you want to better understand yourself or others? Do you have challenges in your family? Do you feel stuck in a particular problem? In the chart-topping How Did We Get Here podcast, Claudia Winkleman and her friend, clinical psychologist, Professor Tanya Byron, identify the struggles faced by real people in one-time, unscripted sessions. Claudia listens to the conversations to discover how Tanya unlocks the story and understand how she guides contributors to a place of clarity. Again, it's about a boundary. Say the things that need to be said, which I think is a compensation for what was never said when you were growing up. You know, you've got to be really careful. Oh, you've just gone, wow. Wow, yeah. Why do you say wow? Because making that link with how things weren't talked about when I was growing up, like emotional stuff, wasn't really discussed. And So now I'm going to bang the table and say what needs to be said. For life lessons that resonate with us all, listen to How Did We Get Here, wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. For me, the reason why I so much resonates to me of your writing is I suppose my life was seen as I'd failed or it something was over for me, a door was shut for me. And actually, similar to you, you know, your failure led to a huge success that wasn't necessarily something that you even predicted. And, you know, the same for me in that what happened to me um, was the catalyst for change in my life and, and made me explore characteristics of my personality I didn't know I had, maybe because I had low self-esteem, didn't believe they were there. So it it, it was, you know, in, in a cheesy Instagram way, one of the worst things that happened to me and one of the hardest things to endure turned out to actually be positive in, in the end product, um, which is which is what happened to you, really, professionally, yeah, do you think? It, it absolutely is. And, and when you mentioned earlier about your plan to be a model and a presenter, you know, I had a plan in place as well. I was someone who was so scared by the inconsistency of the world that I was a massive control freak. So I was trying to plan my future down to the nth degree. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then, and then you realise, you know, and I, you know, I planned what age I was going to get married and how many children I would have and uh, planned that I was going to be a hotshot political correspondent on a daily newspaper. And none of that happened. And when none of that happened, it was uh, on the one hand, a 
scary for me, but on the other hand, an enormous liberation because suddenly you're like, okay, well, I can, that plan's gone out of the window. I have been presented with a blank canvas and the thing that I paint on it is entirely up to me. There were no, there were no expectations that I had of myself anymore. And I, and that's why I now say that I just don't have a five-year plan because Mm. I think what happens sometimes is that you craft a five-year plan that is so overly ambitious that it it bears no relation to the person you actually are right now. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. from having never taken a jog, you're going to run a marathon in six months or whatever. And, um, and actually I just realized that every single time I got to that five-year point, I felt like a failure according to my own metrics. So it's according to the plan I set myself. So why not remove that pressure and just, take life as it is and as it comes and respond to the person I am right now and what mm. she needs and, and wants. That's not to say that you shouldn't save for a pension. I mean, obviously, if you can like do something practical towards it, then yeah. great. But but otherwise, just relieve yourself of the pressure. Take that burden away. Are there other things in society that are seen as failure that you believe no longer should be? A hundred percent. Especially as women. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I know. Talk about being being a woman. It's such an interesting time to be a woman because there's so much possibility and so much opportunity. And at the same time, so many retrograde notions about how we should be in the world. I mean, we're talking on the day that the Duchess of Sussex has spoken about having a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. And um, as someone myself who has been through that several times, I... I'm so grateful for women like her and Chrissy Teigen speaking openly about baby loss Mm. because that's something that for centuries has been wrongly identified, I feel, as a failure, a Mm -hmm. failure of womanhood. And when I went through IVF in my early 30s, I had two unsuccessful rounds of IVF and the language of fertility was absolutely the language of failure. So I was constantly being told by male clinicians that I was failing to respond to the drugs. And it was my friend Fran who said to me one day, maybe you're not failing to respond to the drugs. Maybe the drugs are failing you. Uh It was such a light bulb moment for me because suddenly I was like, oh, I don't have to carry the weight of that responsibility as well. I already felt like a failure because still in so many quarters of the world, it is seen as a woman's function, at least part of her function to be a mother. Mm-hmm. And and I was very used to people making assumptions about me not having children, that I was quote unquote, a career woman and someone who just didn't want kids and therefore kind of unmaternal. And that would really upset me because I felt less than. Mm-hmm. And it's there in the terminology, childless, like no, I, I don't have children, but I've tried so, so hard. And I hope one day that it will be in my future and I will keep trying. Mm. Um, and so that's one area that I think has been wrongly misidentified as a failure for so long, but I'm so grateful that that's changing. And part of that change comes about when women speak openly about it and share their experiences. And so I'm very proud to have been part of that in some small way. Yeah, I think, I mean, when we talked about social media earlier, I suppose that's the positive side where people can control their messaging, their content. You know, you talked about Chrissy. She put that very real, honest, revealing image out there that some people are familiar with that scenario and have been in that image themselves. And I think that was just such a powerful way to take ownership of what could have been a a tabloid story, not on her terms, um, 
when we say the word inspirational, that really did inspire me of her, her authenticity. And again, going back to her vulnerability. Definitely. I think it was such a striking thing to do. And I know many people who haven't experienced something similar would have found it shocking in some way. But Mm. that's precisely why it was worthwhile. The people who don't understand need to be shocked into their empathy in a way. Mm -hmm. And, And so I have such respect for for her and for the Duchess of Sussex and for anyone who has chosen to make things public. And as you say, Katie, so correctly, taken ownership of their story. And that's the key, isn't it? We've been portrayed as the objects of a sentence for far too long, like things are done to us and we've been denied our agency. And one of the most powerful things we can do, as Michelle Obama said, is to take control of our own stories. Like we Mm. need to tell our own stories because... Otherwise, other people are going to do it for you. And and that's not fair. <laughs> mm, absolutely. Now, on, on the podcast, I often ask guests to give sort of tips and coping mechanisms so that people can come and use it as a resource. In your new book, you talk about the seven principles. So uh, the seven key principles of failure. Yeah. So could you talk them through us? And I wondered for you when you've employed them for your own life and, and how it's worked for you. Yes. So I should preface this by saying I have absolutely employed them in my own life because I wanted to see if they worked. I didn't want to put something out there that I didn't fully believe in. So um, to rattle through them quickly, and then I'll tell you how I applied them. The first one is that failure just is, which sounds so obvious, but it comes from that notion that it's inevitable. It's going to happen to all of us. There's nothing we can do to avoid it. We can try as hard as possible. You know, we can try not to fail an exam by doing lots of revision, but you might still fail. And that in itself does not make you a failure. You can be in control of the emotion that you attach to it and how you respond to it, which starts by just observing the fact. The second failure principle is that you are not your worst thoughts, that quite often your brain will get caught in an anxious narrative loop and it will be pointing out all of the things that you've done wrong or all of the things that you might do wrong or all of the ways in which you might fail. And it prevents you from taking a necessary risk in order to grow. So that's really about noticing that you exist beyond your thoughts. And that's the source of a great deal of of power. The third failure principle is that almost everyone feels that they failed at their 20s. <laughs> it's, that's me, yeah. And, and that's yeah. a lot of my friends at my, I'm 37 now, and that's, that's the conversations we used to have, you know, we all feel like, why is that? I think it's because for many of us, it's the first time that we're out of full-time education into the adult workplace where there are no exams that you can take to show that you're doing a good job as a grown-up. And particularly now, I think it's very difficult with rent sky high and the job market so competitive. And you're meant to be having either long-term relationships or one-night stands because you should be having fun, a lot of fun in capital letters. Mm. And you've got to show everyone else how well you're doing on Instagram. So at at the weekends, you have to find time to like bake some vegan brownies and post a picture. (laughs) With a good background as well. Totally. Like a flat plan layout, like all of that. Um, and, and it just feels exhausting and confusing. And I think because nowadays we can compare ourselves so easily to others, there's so much knowledge out there Mm. that 
it's very easy to feel that you're doing less well than your contemporaries. And what I always say to people in their 20s who feel like that is that life is not a race. You know, the object of a race is to finish it first. No one wants to do that with life. <laughs> like, take your time. Maybe your 20s won't be your decade, like, but, but, but maybe actually it not being your decade in the way that you'd perceived will teach you some incredibly important things that will help you grow and be wiser and more experienced in your 30s. And for me, and I don't know about you, Katie, but age for me has been an enormously empowering experience. I, I feel I've got better and more myself the mm-hmm. older I've got. And yeah. I would not go back to my 20s for love or money. I really wouldn't. So that's why I say. <laughs> Especially not now, the way the world has changed for people who are in their 20s in you know, 2020. Um, oh my I, God, I know. And so many of them living in house shares and being locked down with mm-hmm. flatmates who they might not know that well. I just, my heart really goes out to them. And getting through this year is just a sign of how resilient they are. It's a sign of strength. So mm. I, I applaud them for doing it. When this episode goes out, I think it will be the start of 2021. So I suppose it's worth me asking you, it, you know, we've been obsessed with 2020 finishing and, you know, that's, that is typical of the way culture is. Like, well, let's get this year behind us. Yeah. Well, I think for many people, 2021 is still going to feel like a year of uncertainty um, and it, if not possibly harder than last year, because last year might have felt that we had time to pause and to wait. Whereas in 2021, a lot of people might be now trying to move to the next stage when plans were, were scuppered and ruined and things turned out different. What what advice would you give to people at, at the beginning of this this time of, like I said, uncertainty, I suppose? It's such a good point. I think the first thing is to release yourself from your own expectations of how things should be. You need to dial down the volume on should and just be present with how things are. There is no blueprint. We have never lived through a time like this. And if that means your wedding will look slightly different, or it means that you're starting a new job over Zoom, or it means that your diary is suddenly full of commitments when you'd got used to it being so empty that's okay. You can give yourself a beat to come to terms with that. Mm. But I promise you that when things don't work out the way that you thought they would or should, it's always a more enriching experience. Because when you put so much effort into making something happen the way that you want it to, and it happens in exactly that way, you don't learn anything. <laughs> you uh-huh. know, actually, actually, life's greatest moments come in the unexpected corners. So Uh that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that, this is going to sound very deep, time is a linear illusion. So the, the notion of there being a new year and having to make New Year's resolutions and having to like turn the page and start afresh, that also puts us under so much pressure. And actually it's just a continuation. We're just living this thing called life together. And it doesn't matter if it's December the 31st or January the 1st. It doesn't matter if you don't feel any different. Mm. It has been a long, old, exhausting year. But hasn't it been amazing that we've all discovered the power of human connection, the fact that we can keep in touch with our modern technology, we clapped for carers because they are our heroes. There's a whole newfound appreciation of frontline workers doing an incredible job for the rest of us. And I'm really grateful for that. So Mm -hmm. I think my other piece of advice would be to focus on what 
we've learned and what we've gained rather than all of the things we feel we've lost. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting because I think that new year time is a, such a cliche time. And when people interview me, they always expect me to be like, I do a goals list on December the 31st and new year, new me. And and I, I, I find that ridiculous because if there's things in my life that I've wanted to change that have been making me unhappy, I just implement it at that moment of unhappiness. And if I don't, I'm probably never going to, especially not on January the 1st. I could not. I mean, I love you so much. I feel like you're (laughs) in my head. That's exactly how I feel. I don't make New Year's resolutions. No, it's just another month, isn't it? Exactly. And also January's bleak enough already in terms of like British weather. Don't add to it by by making yourself feel you have to do certain things. I wanted to talk to you about something that I thought was quite exciting. I read that How to Fail is being adapted for television. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. What would be the route? Would it be comedy? Would it be drama? Uh, will you be in it? Will you play yourself? Could Can you give me the, the juicy gossip, please? I can absolutely give you the juicy gossip. We're at very early stages where I am basically putting together a pitch and like sample scripts and it's actually just gone to TV companies now. So fingers crossed. Um, But I've been working with an amazing production company and I had never thought that I wanted to write for TV or adapt my own work because I was massively intimidated. I was like, no, I know how to write books and maybe journalism, but I've just got no clue with TV. And then I realised that I was doing the thing that I tell other people not to do, that I was being put off by a fear of failure, ironically. (laughs) And everyone stay in your lane. I, I hate that expression. Oh, it's so restricting, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. I know one of the books that I absolutely love that comes from my same the same publisher as me is called Slay in Your Lane. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> that's much better. Um, and so the way that I've done it is um, taken how to fail the memoir that I wrote, part memoir, part manifesto, all of the things that I've learned through the podcast and fictionalized it. So it's a kind of, it's it's like a comedy drama, I would say, where I hope that the tone is kind of, entertaining, poignant and funny. And um, so it's totally fictionalised. So there is a kind of character that stands in for me and for some of my experiences and the experiences of my friends. And it's a split time frame where um, you go back in time to sort of understand how much Liza, that's her name, has learned from failures and how they have turned into unexpected opportunities. So Mm. And, and it's about women in their mid to late 30s. And I don't see enough of that on television. It's about all of the stuff that we have to deal with. Um, and so I've really, really enjoyed writing it. I'm absolutely not going to be in it unless, oh. unless I get to be an extra. Not even a little, a little cameo. That would be quite cool, no? Actually, yeah, a cameo would be super cool. I'll definitely yeah. do a cameo, yes. <laughs> when will it be on telly? Do you know? I've no idea. I think these things, I don't know. I, everyone keeps telling me in television, it's very slow. It's a very long mm. process. But mm-hmm. to be honest, Katie, like another thing that I've learned is just to take joy in the actual process yes, rather absolutely. than wanting the, the end goal. And so I've really, mm-hmm. I've really loved doing it. It's been a completely different form of writing. It's been really collaborative. I love the production company I'm working with um, and it's kept me entertained through lockdown. Mm. <laughs> 
Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. What a joy to have something like that to feel passionate about and, and purpose and fulfillment. So valuable. Um, one, of, one of the questions, so this is basically my worst question that people ask me. And I always think it's because they're expecting a really dramatic emotional response. And I, I wanted to pose the question to you because I, I want to learn from you and know how you deal with this question. And it's a cliche one of what would you tell your younger self? And, and I suppose the per- it's a loaded question of what are your regrets really, isn't it? And how how would you do it differently? What would be your response to that question? So normally if I'm asked that question, I come up with a really pat response, which is worry less because I was a massive worrier. I still am, but I've learned how to deal with it. Um, and in, in my day, she said, like she was 85 years old. In my day, we were, de- we were like, as children, I was called a worrier. I wasn't called someone with anxiety. But I suppose looking back now, I, you know, had quite a bit of anxiety. Um, and I think I would, but that's my pat answer. And actually, I don't really agree with telling someone not to feel something that is quite difficult mm-hmm. not to feel. And I, and I think that anxiety can often be another way of saying empathy because you're kind of constantly worrying about other people and how things are going to turn out and all that sort of stuff. And and I wouldn't want to deny myself that. So I think what I would say is it is all coming your way. Like it is, it is going to be fine. Mm. Whatever happens, it's going to be fine. And life will take you some unexpected routes, but it will be amazing because... Mm you will experience so much and gain so much wisdom and meet incredible people. So it's okay. I've got your back. I suppose I'd say that to her. (laughs) And and that is really what we're told in therapy, isn't it? Being kind to our inner child, you know, would you, would you speak to your younger self like that and to to nurture yourself and self-soothe? It's, it's, it's all about the, the kindness really, isn't it? Exactly. And I think it's for me anyway, I, I really love it when I'm told it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. I know that's I know that sounds really that that sounds quite banal, but I I need I I too I I totally believe in the universe unfolding exactly as is intended, and I think that comes from the power of human connection in ways that we can't fully express. So mm-hmm. having another human say to you it's going to be okay is such an immensely powerful thing, and mm-hmm. and sometimes that's all it takes. Well, what a lovely way to end the podcast because everybody listening, you heard it here first. Elizabeth Day has told us it's going to be okay. (laughs) So it will be. (laughs) Don't sue me if it isn't. No, I'm joking. It's going to be totally okay. This has been such a delight, Katie. Thank you for some of the best questions I've ever been asked. Oh, thank you. I was just so thrilled when you said yes. Everybody that's listening, I'm going to pop a link up on my story of Elizabeth's new book so that you can click through. Um, It really, really helped me. And like I said, I read it, but also went back and listened again whilst exercising, which I think there's there's something to be said for also listening on audio. I think you get something second time around from hearing it, hearing it read to you. So yes, please do go and buy this brilliant handbook. Thank you so much. You've been extraordinary. Thank you so, so much, Katie. Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>